good to see you and good to be at church this morning. And uh, thank you, Pastor Brian, for allowing me to share this morning. It is Mother's Day, so how was uh, breakfast in bed? No? Flowers, pancakes? No? Well, children, you have uh, 13 hours, okay, to accomplish whatever you have planned. And I'm certain, I'm certain of this because I just say that I'm certain of this. Daddy is always ready for the barbecue. It's already fired up. And uh, Daddy's credit card is always at your disposal. Whatever you need to do. So when Pastor Brian asked me to uh, share this Sunday, that was about a month back already, I believe. Yeah, it was in April. I had not realized that this is Mother's Day. So I was thinking about something completely different. So only until about a couple weeks ago, I realized, oh my goodness, this is Mother's Day. Do I really want to speak about mothers? just in case I don't get to go back home tonight. So I decided, you know what, let me just skirt that a bit. What has been placed in my heart, however, it is about love, though. You know, my family is blessed. Yesterday, uh, my wife received cookies, lovely bouquets of flowers, and, and wishes from my children. And it was, my wife was just really, really so happy yesterday. Even this morning, uh, she got a hug. Just so lovely. But then at the same time, in the last few weeks, what has been heavy in my heart, knowing that this is coming, I also know that there are many families are not able to celebrate the way that we can. I know of families who has an empty chair around the dinner table. I know families where the parent and the child relationship is so strained, so strained, that there is no conversation. And I know there are parents that are so worried about the welfare of the children that today they don't think of celebration. They're hoping for a phone call. They're hoping for a message. And that is why in the last few weeks I have come back over and over again. And my wife can tell you that I couldn't sleep because I couldn't find where I'm supposed to be this Sunday. And eventually it is here that where I'm supposed to be the Good Samaritan story. And that is where we're going to venture in today. Let us pray. Father Lord, we thank you for the fact that we can come here to worship you, that we can be in your presence. So Lord, open our hearts, our ears. May what we do this morning be pleasing to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The Samaritan story, well-known story, you know the elements. You probably have heard it a dozen times, if not hundreds, hundreds of times, just to exaggerate. Location, Jerusalem, Jericho. Why these two? Well, Jerusalem is where the temple is. Why Jericho? Well, Jericho in the Old Testament, on the New Testament time, is in fact the place where the rich and the powerful will go. Because Jericho is the city where King Herod had built a number of palaces, including his summer vacation home. So you will often find King Herod actually in Jericho. So if Jerusalem is a place where the temple is, Jericho is one of those places where the power is. So there's a lot of folks that will go from Jerusalem to Jericho because the powerful one is there. So on that road, from Jerusalem to Jericho are often traveled by rich and powerful men. 
therefore, you're also going to get a lot of robbers because it's going to be quite fruitful in there. So this whole story that Jesus has put out, some call it a parable, some call it an illustration, has real meaning to the people who listen to it. It makes sense immediately. Yes, of course, these two cities, yeah, I know, there's a lot of robbers there. And then the people. And here things got a little bit different, a little bit jarring for the people who will be listening to that story. The priests and the Levite, yes, we expect them to travel on that road. The priests, of course, the one that will perform sacrifices and temple worship. They, of course, are the important people. Levite, okay, they're kind of important too because they will make sure the temple is all right. So yes, we see them on the road. And here's the story again, turn sideways for the listener. There's someone on the road, and that someone has been robbed. You know the story, beaten half to death and left for death. All right? So we have the priest and the Levite, and now they're coming down the road. And they see this guy lying on the side, and then guess what? They walk to the other side. They looked, and then they walked to the other side. So what would you think when you are the person at that time hearing that story? What would come up in your mind? And you're probably coming up with all kinds of reasons why they did that. You probably say to yourself, well, perhaps that's not surprising because it's the priest after all, right? And we know that in Mosaic law, if he touches that person, he has to segregate himself. He can't do his job anymore. Well, maybe that's the reason why, you know, he stepped away and then continue. But then some people will say, well, wait a second, that cannot be the reason. Because after all, the priests also have a duty. If he, they encounter a dead body, they're supposed to bury the person. And after all, this person doesn't seem to be dead. So someone will say, well, maybe that's another reason. Maybe the priests and the Levi were simply scared. Who knows? Could be a decoy. If they were get near to them, perhaps they'd be robbed. Perhaps, we don't know. Those were not the parameters of the story. Was it the focus? What is, would be really jarring is for the Samaritan to show up. Now, many of you know, because you've gone to Sunday school, you've studied for yourself, Samaritan and the Jewish people don't exactly get along. And that trouble runs deep. It goes all the way back to 700 BC, when Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by Assyria people living in Israel at the time were deported, many of them. And the Syrians bring in a lot of people from the other land and occupy what would become Samaria. So for the people living on the southern part of Israel, Judah, when they think of the northern part of what was the, their country, they would think of those people as, you know, mixed at the best. And not only that, Eventually, when Judah itself was invaded by Babylon, they were deported, and when they returned, and when they decided to build the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans actually asked, hey, can we come and join you and build the temple? And we know from Ezra, the Judean people said, no, you have no part in this. You're not part of us. We don't even know if you are really Jewish. No, you may not build. Therefore, the Samaritans went ahead and built another temple on their own, on Mount Gerizim. 
The reason is very simple. Abraham sacrificed Isaac there. When Moses led the people and Joshua cross and bring the next generation into the promised land, they may sacrifice there. Guess what? You don't want us to be in Jerusalem? No problem. We're going to build a temple in Mount Gerizim. And so both politically, ethnically, and religiously, these two fractions have been hitting each other. Can I ask you to get to your Bible, Luke chapter 10? Just flip a page before that. Luke chapter 9, and you will find a very strange little story. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and he wanted to rest in a village of Samaria, verse 51. And then the villager from Samaria refused. Guess what James and John did? You know what? Lord, may I ask the heaven to send fire and come down and just destroy them? Even within the disciples, that's their mindset towards the Samaritans. We really don't want them. They don't want us. No problem. Not only are we going to walk away, I'm going to send fire and destroy you all. That's the animosity, even within the band of Jesus' disciples. And in fact, the Jewish people so hated the Samaritans, they would actually, at one point in Scripture, say to Jesus, you must be a Samaritan. You are demon-possessed. So for this story to have a Samaritan to show up is really, really jarring. For us, not so much, because the first time when you introduce this story, you probably heard the title already, The Good Samaritan. For you and I, the Samaritan is a good guy, but for the people then, not so much. But then why is this illustration is needed in the first place? Why, why did Jesus even need to teach this story? Well, it started off with really a conversation. A lawyer came to Jesus and asked what seems to be a fairly innocent question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, you and I are accustomed to this eternal life. That's what we talked about. That's the whole mission of the gospel. We talked about that there is far more than the present. And we talked about that there you need to worry about life beyond. So to you and I, oh, eternal life, no question. But sit for a moment. Why would the Jewish person ask this question? What should I do to inherit eternal life? And the word is not, how do I get eternal life? Inherit. Inherit. Come from someone else. The reason is a conversation in the rabbinic circle at the time. They have been grappling with the fact that they have lost their land, which is the primary promise from God. They've lost their land. They're in a place that's been occupied successively. Syrians, Babylonians, the Greeks, now the Romans. They've lost their land. The promised land is gone. So they keep looking back to Scripture. What, in fact, do we have from the Lord? And someone will stumble into Psalm 15 and talk about the Lord himself is their portion. Although the rabbi couldn't figure out what that means. And the one that they latch on quite significantly is this. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which is the final chapter of Daniel, talks about the end time. And Daniel said, at the end, many will rise 
some will be given eternal life, and some, however, will be condemned. Whoa. Okay. That is something that we haven't lost yet. It's in the future, isn't it? So therefore, what do I, I need to do to get this? That's where this conversation started. And then Jesus, being a good teacher, and, and any one of you teachers would know that when a student comes and asks a question, you actually repost a question back to them. Well, okay, yeah. can you tell me what perhaps the answer is? And the lawyer said, what is this? Love the Lord your God with everything you have, all of your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this answer, which is a combination of Deuteronomy 6, 5, at Leviticus 19.18, is not normal. It is, in fact, something that has already been thought about in the rabbinic circle at the time. That is, these two are the ultimate principles. And these two, if you understood them and adhere to the, all the laws that follow from them, you're going to do well. So Jesus said, you got it. It's not often that Jesus actually agrees with the person that challenged him. And this is one of those rare occasions. And the lawyer, no offense to other lawyers here, not very smart. You know, you're supposed to quit while you're ahead. Well, not this guy. Ha, I got the right answer. So let me ask one more question. Uh, who is my neighbor? You see, this whole story could have ended. Jesus would have said, nice, well done, go away. No, no, no. Oh, I'm so smart. Who is my neighbor? Why would he ask that? Well, the reason is because what he and others think of neighbor is not what Scripture says and what Jesus teaches about who neighbor is. See, if I ask you who's your neighbor, you probably think of, oh, my friend next door, my neighbor upstairs and downstairs. That's a normal definition of neighbor. a neighbor, isn't it? That's precisely it. If you look back into the Old Testament, you see that too. In Genesis, someone literally on the other tribe is a neighbor. For those who were in Sunday school with Pastor Brian, you probably remember Exodus. Remember Exodus? Before they leave, they were told to go to your Egyptian neighbor and ask them for the precious item. They will give it to you. Egyptian neighbor. And then there's also a part of the passage that just says, okay, you need to prepare the lamb. But if your family is too small and you couldn't consume it, invite your neighbor to come and share that lamb. In this case, it's a Jewish neighbor. And then in Samuel, we see that Samuel, when he was talking to Saul, referred to David as a friend, translated in English, but the word underneath that is actually a neighbor. And then, of course, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, now when the Jewish people have left Egypt in the wilderness, and that talked about neighbor being that community, that community that is bound together through the covenant with God. So that is where, in fact, you find this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. You shall do no injustice, but in your righteousness shall you judge. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, and you shall reason frankly with him. All of this, and if you read the passage before it and underneath it, 
is all about how you get along, how you treat each other as yourself. Hence, the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So you say to yourself, wow, perhaps that's what the lawyer was thinking. If you take from this alone, then I only need to worry about my Jewish neighbor. I don't have to worry about anybody else. It's right there, isn't it? My brother, you know, the community. Except 10 verses down, you see this. If there's a foreigner amongst you, treat him like a neighbor. Why? Do you not remember that when you were in Egypt, you too was a foreigner? So in this community that God is forming right now and establishing a covenant with you, you treat outsiders who are in as an insider. So the definition of a neighbor in the Old Testament has always been far more than the Jewish relation on its own. But by the time of Jesus' time, this definition of neighbor has become narrower, 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 and narrower. And that is why this question was asked. And that is why Luke didn't just say, oh, who is my neighbor? Luke actually made a qualifier, justified. Because in the mind of lawyer, this neighbor definitely is not what the Old Testament says. This neighbor is definitely just the people I like and has to be Jewish. And how do we know that? Because at that time, the teachings was Samaritans, we don't like them. They're not Jewish. We have 100 years of conflict with them. They are not our neighbor. In fact, we dislike them so much. If they wanted to convert to be a Jew, they're not allowed. Gentiles, for sure. I mean, they're unclean. After all, they eat, uh, you know, barbecue pork. Give me a break. They cannot be a neighbor. We don't even want to associate with them. And they are teaching like this from the book of Shirash. So the book of Shirash is written somewhere around 175 and 200 BC. And it is not part of the Protestant Bible, but is recognized at the time as being useful to read. And for the Catholic Bible, for, for instance, you will find this in the Apocryphal section. And there's a lot of actually very interesting uh, teaching in that particular book. And it's referenced during the time of Jesus of wisdom. And that is, this is referred to one of those wisdom literature. And you'll find verses like this, which says, if you do good, well, be careful who you're doing it to. Your kindness will have its effect for sure, but make sure you only do good to the people who deserve it. For those who are wicked, don't waste your time. Show no mercy. Well, who are the wicked? Well, the Gentiles are sinners, aren't they not? They don't follow God's rule. Samaritans for sure. So these are the thinking that is in the mind of this lawyer. My neighbor is just these. Now I just gotten a good answer from, from Jesus. He agreed with the statement that love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. I'm going to get him to tell me that, yes, the way I behave, showing favorable disposition only to a select group of people, is in fact the right thing to do. 
Even in the gospel itself, you notice that Jesus is fighting this very, very narrow view of, of, uh, of, of neighbor. We know about this particular community called the Asin, a Quran. They're the one who gave us the Desi Scroll. It is in their teaching, in fact, that you're not a neighbor, even though you're Jewish, unless you're a member of this community. That is a sort of the segregation and narrowing a definition that was facing. And that is what Jesus is reversing. Not only is Jesus expanding and reveal again who's your neighbor, he went a step further. Remember this passage? Love your enemy. Love your enemy. And why? So that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. So at the end of that illustration, the Good Samaritan, what we ended up is this. The question started with, how do I get eternal life? Who is my neighbor? So you listen to the story. You would think that at the end of it, Jesus is going to answer to you, yes, these are the people who you should be neighbor. In that sense, everybody ought to be your neighbor. No, that actually is not the answer what Jesus gave. Jesus actually asked a lawyer the following question. So out of those three guys, Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan, who is a neighbor to the man that fell victim to? Well, you have no choice. Of course, it's a good Samaritan, isn't it? All of, the, all of a sudden, the question is reversed. Rather than you asking, are they my neighbors? Jesus asked the question back to you. Are you a neighbor? The qualification is no longer on the person that you're looking at. The qualification is on you. Are you a neighbor? The lawyer has, can't get out of it, and he says, well, yeah, okay, the guy who sold mercy. Just to show again, that is so ingrained to them that the Samaritan is, ain't my friend. He couldn't even come up and say the Samaritan is the one who is the neighbor. He just says, well, okay, that guy who showed mercy, I guess, yeah, you know, he, he's, he's the good guy. But here it is. The good Samaritan story we have often thought of, of about who we try to help, but what Jesus wants us to realize is actually the exact opposite. Are you? And the question is, as of today, are you? Are you, am I, a good neighbor? All this only makes sense if you go back a few verses and think about what the lawyer said. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have, mind, soul, strength. And what else? Mind, soul, strength. One more. Cricket. Mind, soul, strength. Oh my goodness. Your heart. And in the scripture, your heart is all that is in you. If the soul is a totality of being, the heart is all that is in you. Hmm? This actually differs from Deuteronomy 6.5, where it came from. But that's not the matter. 
these two statements coming together, and the rabbi was correct, is the supreme principle. Love the Lord your God with everything you got and love your neighbor. But then you ask, where does that come from? You know this, First John chapter 4. Not that we know how to love. We love because he loved at first. And this is used all the time in wedding, right? And I always joke with a couple, so who loved who first? Well, that's a misuse of the implication of the scripture here. This is not about the couple who is loving who first. John was talking about, listen, you go back to chapter 3, chapter 2, and come to chapter 4, you realize John is saying, listen, the cross, get it? The cross. The cross is the demonstration of that supreme love. If you understood that, and if you have come under that, if that is actually in you, then you know. He loved, hence we can love. And then the next logical part is, if you return that love and say, I love you, Lord, how can you say I don't love him? After all, he or she is also the object of his love. If you understand the love from the cross, which is that of sacrifice, which is that of negating myself for the sake of other, how can you hold on to your own grudge? How can you say, I don't like him? I don't care if it's in distress. I just incongruent. Can honey not be sweet? Can it? Make no sense whatsoever. Paul would go one step further. Love your neighbor is not just an expression of your faith or understanding your love. Paul said, what? Hmm. Think about the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover, and all the other commandments are all summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, whoa, wait a second. That's going seriously theological for us here. But actually, it's fairly straightforward. If you truly love your neighbor, would you contemplate trying to kill him? Okay, for a brief second maybe, but you better not carry that out. Are you going to steal from him? Of course not. Are you going to envy of the success? Yes, we do because we're weak, but you shouldn't because your neighbor is enjoying. Enjoy with them. Adultery, that is just broken relationship of a line that you should never cross. And that line always involves a neighbor. Adultery, covetousness, stealing, murder, and all the other. You will not contemplate. So you would have removed the do not. And you replace with the positive. It is love. And that is why love fulfills this law. That's why Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And that is how love fulfilled the law. And that's why the commandments of love your God with everything you got and love the neighbor as yourself are the supreme principle. It fulfilled the law. James would say this, 
If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But that's not the focus for this verse. The focus of this verse is one word, royal. Have you ever heard about this particular loving your neighbor being a royal law? What is a royal law? You know why it's royal? Because it's from Christ the King. What James is trying to tell us is, it's not just about this statement. It's not, not just about an outward expression of what we do to our neighbor. This law sums up what Jesus did on earth. Reaching out to the poor and the weak, healing the sick, looks for the lost sheep, and giving his life on the cross. All that is summed up in this law. Hence, the royal law. Jesus himself would affirm, these are the two, the greatest and the one that follow. Well, what I've been saying, saying so far is not new to you, is it? You've heard it many times, in better ways, and more insightful than what I've been given you. And we all have to remember this verse. This is a season where we're talking about being disciple, right? And we all know this. How do people know that we are a disciple? Faith is implicit. It is part of who we are. But people don't know that by just looking at our faith. But people will know that by our love because love is explicit. It has an effect on others. And that is Jesus. why Jesus said, you know how other people going to know that you are my disciple? Look at that. So if in your mind the discipleship is all about techniques and lessons and more Bible study to do, fantastic. But make sure you wrap that all up and understand the reason why you're doing it. And here is the reason. Let me then address the elephant in the room. Like I said, none of this is new to you. You know you're supposed to love the Lord our God. I hope you do. If you don't, please talk to Pastor Brian. And you all know that you're supposed to love your neighbor. So what's the problem? Why aren't we doing it? You are. I know many of you are. You know why? Because I have many bowls of soup. I love those bowls of soup. And by the way, you can give me soup any day. I don't need to be sick to enjoy soup. I can enjoy soup all day long. So if you feel like giving me a bowl of soup, I'll take it. So it was a summer, and my uh, high school friend, my best friend, he's from the U.S., and invited me to over to, to where he lived, from the States, and spent a week with him. He lives in New York, so that was the first time in New York. I was super excited, and we went all over New York City, and we spent a day one day in Manhattan. So we'll get on the subway and go on and so forth. And on this particular trip on the platform, good thing it wasn't uh, a rush hour, but the platform is busy nonetheless. And we're standing there waiting for a train, and next thing we realized that there was a man fairly close to us suddenly just dropped on the floor. So my friend and I went over and, and took a look, and he was shaking. Looks like he was having a seizure, although we don't know that. So we rolled him to the side, and then we waited. A few minutes later, thankfully, he came to, and he looked at us, and then he grabbed his back and his left. The whole experience was surreal. My friend and I still talk about it. But my point was, throughout that episode, in that busy New York subway station, 
There was only the two of us, the teenagers, who were looking at this man fell on the ground. No one else. No one. No one came near to us. No security guard came. No one even better than I. It's as if we were in some kind of an isolated universe. And that man, for some reason, just got up and left. And my friend's father, later on that evening, when we retold the story and just casually said, oh, he probably think that you guys are robbing him. That's why he left so quickly. So I was just like, what? That is sort of the, the kind of chaotic world that we live in. But then that's about the world. How about us? Some of you might have heard of this before. Certainly those of us who are older. i just leave it up there. The so-called Good Samaritan Experiment. You heard about this? 1973. So this is Princeton Theological Seminary. And the professor in the psychology department really wanted to know what motivates people to want to help people. And there have been all kinds of studies that talk about different personality traits, how they were brought up, and what society they grew up in, all sorts of reasons to explain why someone would want to help. So what these two professors decided to do is actually put the Good Samaritan illustration into a test experiment. They recruited about 67 seminarians, 45 of them participated. Unbeknownst to them, they were being told the following. Okay, you need to come in. That was done over three days. You need to come in, and you're going to do a survey. In the survey, you're going to find out for yourself whether you want to become a, a minister because of some innate desire or there's some external reason call you to be a minister, number one. And number two, by the way, when you complete that survey, we're going to give you a task. You're going to write one of these two sh short sermons. One's on the Good Samaritan, and the other one is just about why do you want to be a minister? So these guys came in. They were all given a dollar, by the way, that's the motivation, one dollar. And so over three days, 45 of them came in the office, did the survey, and, and then write the sermon. But when they came in and write the sermon, and they were only told three to five minutes, and they said, oh, by the way, we actually, the other professor is not in this building. You need to go to that building and to give that speech and sermon to him, Okay. What, the, what, the, what the, uh, the, the participant didn't know was it was actually a test. And the participants were actually going to be grouped into three settings. One group, they're going to be told, yes, please go over, and there's plenty of time. Speak to the secretary and just wait. Another group would say, oh, you better go now because they're waiting for you. But that's okay, you still have time. Another third group was go, oh my goodness, I am so sorry, you're way behind, you need to get over there now because the professor is going to leave soon. Three groups, lots of time, right on time, and you better run. And on that road from this building to the other, there's a very narrow alley. And in that alley, the Good Samaritan, remember, there was someone pretending to be sick. Wow. And then the professors, of course, set up all sorts of uh, hypotheses, what they were looking to test. I have this paper, by the way, those who like statistics and into psychology, love to give you a paper. Well, that's the result. And the results were very shocking and it's become seminal, in fact, in a way of understanding people's behavior. If you're in the hurry group, only 10% of you will stop. These are seminarians. These are non-ordinary people. These are people like you and me. 
It's like coming to church this morning, and then we see someone lying on the street. Pastor Stan and Pastor Brian decided that, you know what? Ah, I'm sure someone will help him. I just come to church because we need to start worship on time. Mind-boggling, isn't it? <laughs> and in fact, in the hurry group, those who wrote a sermon on the Good Samaritan, they actually stepped over the one on the ground. Wow! But you know what? The professor looked at the data, post-experiment interview. It wasn't so much that these seminarians are heartless, but they discovered that there's a principle. There's a conflict. You see, when we have different priorities, we tend to put those priorities first. In this case, they were told they're running out of time, they need to get there now, and that becomes their first priority. And unfortunately, that man on the road is not his priority. It's not that they're callous. They were in conflict, and they made a choice. And in this choice, not very Christian-like, is it? And that is what I want to leave you with. And that is why in my structure of the sermon today, I'm not able to bring you any significant other new insights about love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. We all know that some of you know far deeper than I do in the theology of that. But this we all recognize. This we all know. And this perhaps explains our devotion to the service of the Lord and why sometimes our ears are half closed and our eyes are also half closed to the plight of those who are in need. What, in fact, is in your mind? What, in fact, is your priority? Is it really your fellow brother and sister in church? Is it really that stranger on the subway? That, I'll leave that to you. The story actually ends with another story. Mary and Martha. Take a look. Chapter 10. What is the main focus of Mary and Martha? Hmm. Business. Perhaps it's not the best thing, is it? Because they take away your priority from, from God. And that's what Mary's paid for. Perhaps Luke know about this psychological experiment that will be done 1,900 years later. I don't know. But commentators always have often said, these two stories, Good Samaritan and Mary Martha, is a pair. And Luke meant to put them together to help them understand the love principle that was at the beginning of chapter 10. Let me conclude then by drawing your attention back to the Samaritan. Because this is hopefully something practical that you can take home with. Look at what the Samaritan actually did. There was a giving, there was a giving of the part of him. There was the oil, the wine. How did he bind up the wound? Piece of his clothing. That was the sharing. There was the walking along with that who is sick. There was giving up of the animal, could possibly a donkey, and he's on it. The sick man was on it, but he had to do that walk. But there's also the invitation. Listen, we cannot help everyone. We cannot even help one person sometime. We need the community, community. And that's where the in comes in. And lastly, is always hopeful. None of this illustration at any point give us the idea that the man will not be healed. It is always with expect expectation the man will be healed. So what did the Samaritan say? Here's some money. Take care of him. And by the way, I'm going to come back. If you need more money, you got it. 
And that's what I want to leave you with today. There are going to be families that you know that can use a touch of love today. Are you going to just leave him with something? Or do you have this whole entire thing in your mind? After all, in this illustration, this sick man, it just happened to be on the path of the Samaritan. There are going to be people in your life that just happen to be in your life. But I think the implication from this story is a little bit more than just they happen to be in your life. Note your priorities. Note the lives that are in front of you because there are no more important principle than love the Lord your God with everything you got and love your neighbor as thyself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us love. Teach us, Father, to love. Teach us, Father, what is actually important. Lord, there's a lot of brokenness in the world today. There are a lot of people that cross our paths. Show us, Lord, how to show mercy and show us, Lord, how to reach out. And with all of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.